I always say to myself that there is a finish line, there is an end to this, whether it's a, it's a distance or a time, that there is an end to it. I just endure it and just you know, say, pull up with it. Like for, for me, with some of these races, like, I look at, hang on, I'm with the pain to go here, this is my holidays, so I'm going to enjoy it. Welcome to all of you for our 16th episode of the Hard as Nails podcast brought to you by Outsider.ie, Ireland's adventure magazine and supported by Great Outdoors Dublin. Ireland's go-to shop for adventurers and outdoor enthusiasts have the best advice on what is the right gear you will need for any race, whether you're running 5 kilometers or even 100 kilometers, And whatever you're looking for to make the experience that much easier, Great Outdoors will have it and at an affordable price. If you don't believe me, then go check out their website, www.greatoutdoors.ie or just go visit the store on Chatham Street, just off Grafton Street. My name's Kevin. It's uh, great to have you join us uh, once again. Our guest for this episode is an Irish running legend who has traveled the world to run in some of the most hardcore ultra marathons and endurance races. Apart from competing in every environment imaginable, he also represents Ireland at world and European level in 100 kilometers, ultra trail and time-based 24-hour races and has been crowned Irish national champion a number of times. To top it all off, he is incredibly selfless by assisting as a guide runner and helping others to achieve their goals no matter how big or small. We have the honor of speaking to none other than John O'Regan. John, thank you for joining us on the Heart as Nails podcast. It's a, it's a privilege to have you on. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. Well, John, let's begin with the obvious question. What got you into ultra running all the way back in 2001 at the age of 31 years old? And, and what were you doing in your 20s before then? Well, I had some friends training for the Dublin Marathon. It wasn't something that was of any interest to me. And it just happened that one day I bought a book by Dr. Mike Stroud called Survival of the Fittest. Mm-hmm. In that, there was a chapter about the Marathon des Sables, 150 miles across the Sahara Desert. I was familiar with the race, having seen it on Eurosport, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize that it was a race that was open to anybody. And to me, it was just you know, elite runners were kind of taking part in this. It was almost like the Olympics. So after reading this uh, chapter in the book, I realized, hang on, you know, this sounds really interesting. Mm. And although I wasn't interested in running, this gave me a reason to want to run because to me, the thoughts of going to an extreme environment without being a tourist and kind of getting to see what I had to offer, that was the attraction for me. The running was, was going to bring me there, mm-hmm. but I, I wanted to be out there in that wilderness. Previous to that, uh, when I was growing up, I, I had an interest in, in the outdoors. I grew up in inner city Dublin, kind of uh, away from it all. Mm-hmm. And at the weekends, I had the opportunity to, to an uncle of mine I, to go out to the countryside. I used to go spend a lot of time fishing, camping, stuff like that. And apart from that, my sporting background would have been martial arts. So I did martial arts for over 20 years. I'm a second down black belt in martial art called ninjutsu. And I would also be a very keen hill walker. Brilliant. Now, in terms of the marathon running, John, you've been doing that now for the better part of 17 years. Do you feel yes. that you are yet to reach your peak? Have you already reached it? And where do you feel you are right now in this moment with your running career? At this moment, uh, I've been kind of sidetracked because I, I've got very much involved in coaching mm-hmm. and I have been managing the Irish 
Ultra Running Team. I'm also I'm with Athletics Ireland on on their uh, committee that looks at ultra, ultra running in Ireland, mm-hmm. and I'm also with the world governing body, the IAU, as part of the communications committee. As well as that, locally I'm involved with a running club and one of the senior coaches. So I've been kind of sidetracked a little bit. Uh, like I'm still training, so maybe uh, start of next year I, I'll start looking to qualify and get competing again. You might find this funny now, but it was, it was my birthday there a few weeks ago. I was 49, mm-hmm. and I actually thought I was 50. And I was looking forward to being 50 because I've been moving into the next age category. Yeah. So you can say running keeps you young. I was actually looking forward to being you know, a little bit older. So to me, it was a disappointment. <laughs> well, you'll just have to wait one more year to get into that category. Well, John, as I mentioned, uh, you represented Ireland and at world and European level in 100 kilometers, ultra trail and 24 hour races uh, with a number of international appearances to date. Looking now at each event individually, 100 ultra trail, 24 hour races, which do you find is the most grueling and the most rewarding? The most grueling I, for me had been the 100 kilometers because it, it, it can actually be quite a fast race. Yeah. And when you're moving fast, you don't have as much time to hold, really be as tactical and, and enjoy it. So the 24-hour race seemed to suit me a lot, a lot better because uh, it was a different kind of suffering and it requires a lot more kind of mental strength. And I found that I, I was able, I, there was a kind of an, an enjoyment from being able to push your body that little bit more and see how far you can actually go. And I suppose go through a lot of peaks and troughs, more troughs than peaks. Mm and being able to bounce back and I thought to me it it was a real real challenge and I I enjoyed that trying to find out how far you can actually go Very interesting Well John what fascinates me is that you've completed an ultra marathon or even just a marathon on each of the seven continents so that obviously includes running in the North Pole and Antarctica Now in doing so you've completed the highest the lowest the most northern the most southern the hottest and the coldest marathons in the world which are some of the more standout races that you have done? I would have to say the the North Pole will probably be the most uh, standout one to me. Now, mm-hmm. The North Pole is would have been separate to the Seven Continents, so that was because it's at the polar ice cap, there, there's no land there, it's just a floating mass of ice. Mm-hmm. From, from my recollection of the North Pole, I couldn't wait to get there. And when I got there, it was so cold, I couldn't wait to leave it. Mm-hmm. But I do want to go back. <laughs> so it was just an incredible environment. And I would like to go back to see if I got the same experience from it. Originally, I had I had uh, ran the seven continents mm-hmm. over a period of seven years, and then last year I did the seven continents in just under seven days, mm-hmm. a marathon on each continent. Wow! Yeah, we'll yeah. get to that a little bit later. But but mentioning running on ice, you've run on that terrain. You've also run in the desert, as you mentioned, the marathon de sable. Yes. So you've done very very different uh, terrains. How do you p- prepare for each one of them, John? And which is the most interesting for you to run on? I can say it's hard to prepare but you have to make the most of, of, of what you have and you you do what you can mm-hmm. so th- there's no point in, in worrying about something that, that, that you can't change or can't probably prepare for so mm-hmm. you just be as ready as you possibly can if you're going somewhere somewhere warm you have to try and train train yourself to, in some way to, to be heat adapted by, by wearing extra layers of clothes mm-hmm. Uh, maybe spending a bit of time in the sauna, running on a treadmill with, with some extra layers on you. But then when you go somewhere cold, that's the complete opposite. Mm. But if you get the clothing right, the clothing is what helps you, you know, in, in the cold environments. Mm. And funnily enough, when you're somewhere hot, you want to be somewhere cold. When you're somewhere cold, you want to be somewhere hot. Mm-hmm. So... Hmm. 
put the, 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 the body doors adapt. Speaking about the body adapting and, and that, that when it comes to the environment and the temperatures, but how how tricky is it though when you're running on desert sand and and in you know on ice up in the Atlantic uh, and uh, Antarctic and North Pole that you can't really get a grip of before you head into each one of those. Well, actually, with, with the North Pole, it was, it was complete opposite of what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to wear snowshoes at the North Pole, and it's it's a very unusual kind of surface mm-hmm. in that it's it's almost like candy floss. Mm-hmm. In that it's it's not the, the, there's no part where it's level at all, or you say beyond like a, you know, a ploughed field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but east, I was expecting that be, because we were doing kind of a lap course that each time we we do a lap, mm-hmm. that the the under conditions would become more compact. But it was the opposite. We were actually ploughing plow, away you know, and making as sort of like a furrow as we, we were going around, mm-hmm. and that made each each lap became more difficult than the last. So mm-hmm. that was quite tricky so it, it, it's something that's really really hard to prepare for because if you're running in snowshoes you can only go forward yeah. you can't go backwards so in Antarctica then it was the opposite there, there is land there it, it mm-hmm. was quite flat and there's a very very thin layer of like snow mm. but the underfoot conditions were, were quite good so that would be almost like running uh, cross country mm-hmm. you know there was, so some parts will be a little bit undulating but it was quite quite manageable. Hmm. Well, another interesting terrain, if we can call it that, John, is when you did a vertical run up the Empire State Building, where oh, you, were, yes, yeah, you, were, you're, you're part of a, a group of about 100 runners. I mean, 1,576 yes. steps to the top of New York's tallest building. What was that experience like for you nine years ago? That was really enjoyable. Uh, oh, hmm. That's that's probably the shortest race that I've ever done. Uh, the fortress I've travelled for the shortest race. Mm-hmm. And again, it's very, very hard to prepare for something like that. Uh, I, I, I prepared as best I could, but when I got over there, it was just unreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got to the top of the building, it I had a cough, like like wow. a, a climber's cough that I was kind of suffering from altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to actually, actually get over that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I walked out of the system in, in training of what way I was going to approach it running up the steps but there was a point when we got halfway up where you have to go from one side of the building to the other and that's what really really knocked me out when I, when I started running on the flat mm-hmm. my legs started to buckle and I found it hard going from that back onto the steps it'd be almost similar to what uh, somebody training for the first triathlon would experience mm-hmm. when going from uh, a cycle to a run you know like a, a, mm-hmm. a brick session but it, yeah, it was a unique experience, so you know, one I really, really enjoyed. Well, you mentioned training there. Now, now when it comes to your training and, and your preparation you do before races and events that are obviously not upstairs and upper buildings, you're quite savvy with how you go about putting it all together. I mean, could you say this with our listeners and how often you would run to and from work just to guarantee that you're in the best possible shape before each race? I like to uh, maximize my available time. Mm-hmm. And for me, say running to work, I'm living about 16 kilometres away from away from where I walk. Mm. Uh, and my way of looking at it was, it was taking me 10 minutes to walk from my house in the opposite direction to get to the train station. Then mm. I got to the train, I had to walk from the train, or if I was getting the bus, it'd be something similar. But boy, those 10 minutes walking could have been spent running mm. in the direction I was going in. So the journey then would be costing me 45 minutes. So that was 
you could say, 50 minutes to an hour. Mm. And it was only taking me an hour and 20 minutes to run into work. So I was saying for that extra 20 minutes, I was getting, you know, uh, 16, 17 kilometre trying to run down. Mm. So I was able to kind of convince myself that this was, you know, a, a way of you know, saving my time mm. and kind of using it uh, in the most beneficial way. Yeah, and you're obviously, and, obviously but, saving money too because you weren't needing a train to get anymore. Well, there you go. Yeah, it was one less seat in the train, yeah. Yeah. John, I heard somewhere that you rarely told your colleagues that you were out running and winning these huge races on the weekends. Is this true? And if so, why the secrecy? Yeah, well, well, it wasn't so much a secrecy, but not everybody is interested in it. Mm-hmm. So and for, for that reason, I wasn't really going to be talking about it. Like, most of the people I work with are interested uh-huh. in, in soccer or, or Gaelic football, mm-hmm. and, and that's more or less it. There's a lack of understanding, and I'm not going to get, get annoyed because somebody isn't interested in what I do, and you know, we all have, have to have different interests. So mm. I don't need somebody's kind of recognition to be doing what I enjoy doing. And, and that's just it, really. It was funny, I suppose I come back from the North Pole and somebody said to me, did you do anything exciting on your few days off? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I was at the North Pole. <laughs> well, that must have been a moment yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, you discovered a way of enjoying running extremely long distances in the first seven years or so in your journey to becoming a hardcore endurance runner by motivating yourself through goal setting. Could you share that secret with us? And do you still use some of those principles today? I always do that, no, no matter what I do. Now, I, I give you a perfect example. Mm-hmm. I, I started training just to do that one race, the marathon they saw. And I came back, that was it, I was finished. I came in contact with a guy who was doing another race similar. He asked me for a bit of advice. I was a local expert, of course. So I told him what to do. He went and did a race. And then I was told about this race that was going to be happening in, in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. It was the first ever race to be held in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And I said, geez, it wouldn't be great to get there. And I went and did the race in the dirt again. And then I just thought to myself, hang on, I'm not not forgetting to visit two continents that people rarely get to visit, Africa and and Antarctica. And that made me want to to then visit the seven continents because I'd actually, I'd also ran uh, the Dublin Marathon, so that was a marathon in Europe. And I was just kind of thinking, wouldn't that be a nice way of doing it? And then when I when I finished my seven continents with the, the last race I did in Australia, mm-hmm. I was starting to feel a little bit down after coming back. But shortly after that, Petra was announced as one of the new seven winners of the world. Mm-hmm. And so was the Inca Trail. And I was at the visiting the two of those uh, crew races. So then I thought to myself, I'm now going to visit the Seven Wonders of World by doing a race as close to them as possible. Hmm. And so that's kind of a, a new target. You know, last year or the year before, I did a race in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And I had a stopover in Rio to go and visit Christ the Redeemer. But because of the roadworks that were on at the time for the getting ready for the Rio Olympics, mm-hmm. I didn't actually make it. So I'll have to go back there again another time. But mm-hmm. that's my that's my plan now is to visit all the seven wonders. Wow, amazing. Well, now, yeah. when it comes to 100-kilometer races, 24-hour marathons yep. and so on, now these sort of challenges, John, they can put such a strain on your body physically. How do you cope or manage that pain during a race? There's two types of pain. There's what I call the pain of you know, some possible injury or something wrong, mm-hmm. and then there's the pain of improvement. And I call the pain of improvement is if, if, if it's something that's all over, not just localised to one area, mm-hmm. you know it's coming from, from you walking. And I know that that's going to ultimately, if I recover from this, 
in the right manner, which I usually do, that this is going to make me stronger. I always say to myself that uh, there, there is a finish line. There is an, an end to this, whether it's a, it's a distance or a time, that there is an end to it. Mm. And I just endure it and just, you know, say, pull up with it. Like, for, for me, with some of these races, like, I look at, hang on, I'm with the pain to go here. This is my holidays. So mm. I'm going to enjoy it. And actually, I did a race in Australia and I went into the race with, with an injury. I, my OT band was really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And that kind of hit me during the race to the point where I had to walk. Mm-hmm. I, I thought to myself, hang on, I'm, I'm only 20 kilometres now into a 100 kilometre race and I'm walking. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of pulling out because I thought to myself, I'll probably never be in Australia again. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to enjoy the pain. I'm going to, I'm going to hike until the cut-off time is, is finished and I can't finish the race. So I said, I'm just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. But, during the race, I then discovered that I was able to run up hills and I was able to run the flat, but I couldn't go down hills. Mm. So that's what I did. And I just enjoyed the environment. Well, John, what you're busy speaking about then, that the pain of improvement, it, it touches very much on mental strength. How, how do you get into the right frame of mind during a race? And are there moments when your mind can perhaps play tricks on you, like uh, when you had hallucinations while completing that historic 153-mile uh, Spartathlon between Athens and Sparta in Greece? Yes, well, well, the mind can play tricks with you. And I think that, that the more comfortable you, you, you become with yourself, the more familiar you come with these, these scenarios, that you are able to deal with them. Mm. Like, I, I know that in a 24-hour race, that it, or maybe something longer, that it is expected that you're going to hallucinate. Mm-hmm. So you learn how to differentiate what is a hallucination and what, and what isn't. Luckily for me, I've never experienced anything really bad. Like, I usually see, see things that are, are, are real. Mm-hmm. As in, I, I see people, I see buildings, houses, just just stuff that kind of looks out of place. Mm-hmm. Whereby other people report saying, I don't know, octopuses out <laughs> in the road, and mm-hmm. you know, just silly stuff like that. But yeah. I seem to be able to. I, I'm getting real images, mm-hmm. but I know I, I kind of know from out of place, and I don't try and uh, fight it. I accept it, and I just try to keep moving on. Mm-hmm. When I was in Spartathlon, I remember. I, I, I thought I'd seen a guy standing on, on the side of a road and he had a cigarette and I said hello to him mm. and then he, was, he wasn't there so then I kind of knew this isn't good you know I'm, yeah. I'm starting to lose night and then I saw rabbits on the road but it, it was just the rocks returning to the rabbits and then mm. I thought I saw a uh, garden shed mm-hmm. and then I knew it was hallucinating mm. so what I did then was when I met my support crew at the next aid station I I took off my, my head towards because I knew the sun was going to be coming up mm-hmm. and I just said to myself, it's a new day, it's a new day, handed the head torch over and I could, made myself wake up and that mm-hmm. was it, I was back in the game then, right. hallucinations were gone. Sure. But then when I was in the, I was in the Yukon going along uh, the Dawson Trail across the, the Rockies mm-hmm. and up ahead I kept seeing uh, it was like a, a, a cameraman standing in the middle of the trail and I remember walking towards him and he he, he wouldn't he wouldn't move until the actual right beside him and he'd only he'd only go when I turned away mm. and that was quite an unusual one. but that to me was the most real I'd ever had but was the guys beside me couldn't mm. see him I, I was just telling the guys to you know mind their language as mm. a cameraman on the trail up ahead and going to look at me where you know oh, fascinating now John mm. taking both the physical and the mental parts of endurance running into consideration which for you is the toughest to overcome well it's easy to train the physical and it's not as easy to train the mental. And the reason I say that is you have to endure the physical for quarter a while before the mental starts to come into use. Mm. So 
you don't always get the opportunities to train your mental strength. So that's that's what I like actually getting to the point in a race where I know, okay, I'm now really, really starting to suffer. It's now I'm starting to train the mind. But this training session is only beginning. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to get this opportunity again for a long time. So I accept it and I embrace it. Mm. And I use this as a time to actually train my mind. And then when you come face to face with a situation similar to that again, you can look back and say, I've been there, I've done that. I'm doing it again. Mm. Right. So it comes from it comes from the experience, and the, the more times you come face to face with yourself, the more times you get to realize how much you can trust yourself. Yeah, very well said. Now, John, I read somewhere that you seldom run the same race twice. I'm curious to know why that is. I remember going on holidays to the same place the second time. I'm like, when I got there the second time, I just thought, well, this is just too greater. Mm. I'm at the waste of my time coming over here. I didn't enjoy it, and I just thought the world is a small place. I'm going to visit as many places as I possibly can. I've done the London Marathon quite a few times because uh, I used to uh, run for Runners World magazine so they bring me over and that was the only reason I used to look at that as a weekend away in London. Mm. I've done local races because they're close but if I'm going to travel I want to do something different. Mm. Now I've been to Antarctica twice but I've been to two different locations in Antarctica Mm. luckily but I wouldn't mind going to the North Pole and going to the same place Mm. or going back to some of those extreme races but if I have a choice, I prefer to go somewhere different. Mm. There's another concern, though, that by not doing many of the races for a second time, you might run out of locations? Oh, well, I hope not. <laughs> but another thing is, the second time you go somewhere, really, what I think is, you can be replacing a good experience with a bad memory. Uh, but what happens if you've had a bad memory at that race uh, for the first time? That hasn't happened yet. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm glad to say. Yeah. So I, I can't answer that question until mm. that does happen. Now, if I, if I had, I, I mightn't say I had a bad memory. I might say I had a challenging race. Mm-hmm. And that might bring me back. But I, I, I suppose it's sometimes it's if your ego is in control of what you do, you might, you, you, you might be brought back mm. as if you're trying to prove something. But, you know, I, I have reasons for going where I'm going and doing mm. what I'm doing. So that's the reason why, I, uh, mm. you know, that's the reason why I'm doing it. Yeah. And, t- and to me, in some ways, the, the, the running is what brings me there. Mm. But I'm, I'm going for other reasons. Mm. What is the sort of the recovery period you give yourself to recuperate physically and mentally between major races and challenges? Well, I'd always say that depends. Mm-hmm. And I usually know uh, how much recovery time I need, which is going to happen with practice but some, something that I generally do is, uh, especially with long races you, you, I think you really have to look after your, your engine your heart mm. and what I would tend to do is say maybe a week before a race is I go out and I'd run a set distance at a set heart rate Mm-hmm. on the running track somewhere that's that's nice and easy and I'd note the time it took me to cover that distance and then when I come back from the race mm-hmm. I would then give myself a few days off and then I go I go onto the track and I'll try and repeat what I did before the race mm-hmm. and I'll know by the length of time that it takes me to do what I previously did if I'm recovering or if I still need more uh, recovery time. Mm-hmm. So that that's one little little trick I do. But I don't I don't rush the recovery. I mm-hmm. I, I, I take my time. Mm, yeah, wise and sensible approach. 
Now, fortunately, John, uh, you are sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. How much of a difference does it make to have such a great company supporting you? I couldn't do what I do if it wasn't for the help and support. They've been uh, helping me since uh, full time since 2006. Mm. And previous to that, they had actually helped with some of the race that, that I had done before. And when I went to the North Pole, they supplied all, all the kit for that. And then the following year, I went to the Yukon and I had a, I had a few other guys with me and they, they, they helped us all out that mm. one. And before that, going back, I, I was a regular customer in the shop, so the guys in the shop knew me, mm-hmm. and I, I started to build up kind of a, a good relationship with them, mm-hmm. and it was them that actually approached me rather than me approaching them, which mm-hmm. was, was, you know, super, because mm-hmm. they said, look, we know what you're doing, we'd be interested in giving you a little bit more support, mm-hmm. what's your next plan? And, that, and at that time, I was actually in the shop, getting myself ready to go to uh, Everest Base Camp for a marathon there. Mm-hmm. And we've been we've been together since. And if someone's when they're getting the new products, they ask me, do you know this or what do you think of that? Mm-hmm. They give me something to try out. Mm-hmm. And on occasion, they, they haven't stopped something because I've tried it out and they didn't think, mm-hmm. you know, based on what I was saying, if I, if, if, if I wouldn't buy it, I said, no, they they haven't used it as athletes mm-hmm. you, you just can't do it there's so many other expenses that you know, it just takes something something you know away from your worries that you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about your kit and the kit can make all the difference because good gear isn't cheap and cheap gear isn't good mm-hmm. and if you're somewhere extreme it's then you realise that you need the quality because you can't buy your, buy your way out of a problem when you're in the jungle mm-hmm. you yeah, know absolutely so what's the one piece of kit that you constantly rely on then that's a hard one to answer now, mm. but I'm very fond, be, be, because most of what I do is, is training, I, I, I use a Garmin 935, mm-hmm. and a lot of the, a lot of people are coached, they're actually starting to use them, and I find that that is a super watch. Mm. That's, that is something that uh, I'm using more than anything else. Well, John, as I mentioned at the start, I mean, you, you've been crowned Irish national champion quite a few times over the years. How important is it for you to win races and break records? Is that something that motivates you to keep going and to push even harder? Well, it's, it's not a be-all and end-all. No, mm-hmm. like, whenever I go into a race, I'm trying to win every race I do. I don't have to win it, but I go out with the intention of that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm not into this act of saying you're going to race, I'm only doing it as a training run mm-hmm. or creating excuses before you go. If I'm paying for a race or I'm picked to represent in a race, I'm going out there to do my absolute best, and I want to be finishing that in in a jocker, as we say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I I train to win, I compete to win, but if I don't, I, I restart and I do something. I I, I try to do the same the next one. Mm. Now, John, we've spoken about you as an individual runner. Let's now chat about the amazing assistance that you give and your selflessness to wanting to help other runners achieve their goals and dreams. One of them is blind athlete and explorer Mark Pollock. How did the two of you meet? Well, it was kind of accidental with Mark. So I come back from the marathon they saw. There was a friend of mine who knew Mark, told me he mentioned that Mark was planning to race in the Gobi Desert, which was a similar format. And Mark would be interested in meeting me and, you know, if I could offer somebody with voice. So I met Mark and his running guide. We, we got on quite well. I helped him with the make up a, a training program, help with the kit selection. Mm-hmm. Mark went on to complete that race successfully. We kind of kept in touch. And I started training a little bit uh, with Mark. 
And Mark was, was kind of saying that he'd, maybe we should try and do a race sometime together. I said, you know, what would interest you? And he said he'd love to try somewhere cold. And it just happened, very coincidentally, I heard about a race that was going to happen at the North Pole, mm-hmm. which was a couple of months later. And I mentioned that to Mark while we were on the training room in the Phoenix Park. And he just said, let's do that one. Mm. So we went, we did, we ended up doing the North Pole Martin in April of the following year, which was 2004. Mm-hmm. And we come back from there, we, we didn't talk for quite a while afterwards. Like said, we both suffered quite badly and actually we were underprepared. And then we got back together again in 2007 and we ran the marathon from above Everest Base Camp back to mm-hmm. Namche Bazaar. And then a few weeks later, we were over in Jordan doing the Dead Sea Ultra Marathon. So we went from the highest start line to the lowest finish line mm. within space of a couple of weeks and after that we suppose we, we've just been keeping in touch mm-hmm. since then mm-hmm. I was in Norway with Mark two years ago we were training in the Hardanger Plateau for a race in Siberia that ended up being cancelled mm-hmm. and I'm also on the coach now for his uh, run in the dark so I've been involved with that mm-hmm. since I started Incredible as you mentioned you've been involved with Mark running the North Pole uh, Everest uh, Gobi Desert among other amazing adventures what is it about Mark that made him so incredibly tough? Well I saw he he was a competitive athlete before he went blind, mm-hmm. and then he was looking for something, some outlet where he could be as competitive as he was, and he found that in the endurance pace running and yeah. in the extreme environments that he might not have been able to, to compete with with those around them, mm-hmm. but there was still an element of comp- of competition because you were competing against the clock, competing against the environment. Yeah. And also the, the, there was, it, it became more of a challenge both physically and mentally. So he's very, very competitive. I think that that's what keeps him going. Mm. Now, more recently, you've helped coach and guide Sinead Kane to become the first visually impaired athlete to finish an ultramarathon in Ireland. That was some achievement. Uh, yes, I suppose it was just a fluke that nobody else had done it. But yeah. we went on from that then. Uh, I knew then after that race that I could kind of see where her strengths were. Mm-hmm. And she went up uh, to Belfast then a couple of months later and did a 12-hour race. And she finished second in that race and went and did another 12-hour race and increased in her time. Mm-hmm. And again, she finished second. And then I, I kind of thought to myself that maybe if there was, if it was a level playing field that, that she wasn't relying on somebody else, that mm-hmm. she could even do better. Mm-hmm. So I come up with an idea of her running on a treadmill and mm-hmm. trying for what was the Guinness World Record for 12 hours on a treadmill. And she successfully broke that record wow. earlier this year. Well, with Sinead, also in January of 2017, you both successfully completed, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, a marathon on each of the seven continents in less than seven days. How did that crazy idea come about and what was the most difficult part of the whole challenge? Well, there's a guy from Galway, Richard Donovan, who organises the the North Pole Marathon, the Antarctic Ice Marathon, also the Volcano Marathon. Mm -hmm. So I I would have got to know him years ago. Before he, he was operating the North Pole Marathon, I would have been getting some advice off him before I went to the desert. And a couple of years ago, he did a marathon in each of the seven continents himself. Boy, just he booked flights and he travelled the world. Mm. And then he came up with this idea. So two years ago, when he set up the fourth race, I tried to take part in it, but I couldn't secure the, the, the funding. Mm-hmm. And again, the two years ago, I tried, I tried again. So then I mentioned that to Sinead, look, you know, she wanted to do something different. And I said, well, well look, at this. If, you could, if you could pull this one off, this would be really, really mm-hmm. impressive. Mm-hmm. So we came together as a team. We 
approach to the, the training was the easy part. Mm. So what we needed to do was once we once we were able to get on the plane, I knew that we had a good chance of success. Mm. Once you know everything went for us, there was there was no hiccups with the logistics, mm-hmm. which I based on Richard's reputation, I was sure there wouldn't be. Mm. So we we trained, we come up with a, with a kind of a, a business plan about how we were going to do it all between mm-hmm. our own kind of uh, logistics, our own support, getting the uh, not so much responsible investors involved in it because mm-hmm. we, were, we were looking at kind of giving them uh, returns. It was a lot of work. The training and the running was probably the easy part, but yeah, it was a, it was a great adventure. Mm. So was it then the actual seven marathons that was very tough to do? Or was it was it the travelling between the no, two? No, the travelling was great because it was, you know, yeah, you, you had everything in one place. Mm-hmm. You were, you were sitting down. You were you like we had business class seats. You were able to eat and you were able to recover so much. But the getting off the plane and then starting to run again that was, that was a bit tricky at first, especially when you if it was a case that you weren't able to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, I suppose the, the toughest part was actually when you, when you got to the end of it because it was such an adventure. You knew that that's it. It's, hmm. it's gone now. Yeah, it sounds like an absolutely incredible adventure you had. Now, John, I'm interested to know how different it is for you to run as a guide compared to when you're running as just John O'Regan in a race. I would imagine that a different mindset is required as in one instance, you just need to think about yourself. And then in the other, as a guide, you also got to have your partner to look out for and and their well-being. It can be tricky, you know. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of people who can want to get involved in it or or try it, mm. but you know you don't actually realise how how difficult it is. So I think that to, well to be to run as a goal runner. Mm-hmm. You have to be that bit of faster and stronger than the athlete that you're guiding because you you can't be falling behind. You always have to be side by side or be a step ahead. Mm-hmm. So for safety reasons. So if there's an obstruction or the athlete trips, that you're there to actually prevent them from from uh, falling. Mm-hmm. And then you need to be a really really good uh, communicator. Mm-hmm. So and then each athlete is different. So you have to work out. Uh, a series of commands that mm-hmm. the person understands. And to, to me, what, what I find is that some people talk a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that as a guide runner, you have to you have to be kind of clued into being uh, communicating rather than having a conversation. Yeah. you got to cancel out any needless words. So what I mean by that is, if I was coming towards a speed ramp, I wouldn't say there's a speed ramp up ahead because... The, the, the key word of that is speed ramp and you're thrown in the middle of a sentence mm. and you're continuing on. So I would, I would use that first. So I'd say speed ramp, 50 metres. Mm-hmm. So then the athlete is being given a forewarning so they're starting to doze off that yeah. they're, they're mentally prepared for that. That's like a little wake up. And then as they get close, mm-hmm. I would say, I would start doing a countdown. So I might count down from 10. But it's hard to say exactly what 10 metres is. But yes. I, I would kind of time the gap between my numbers to indicate the distance we're coming to it. So I would think that you, you have to be very economical uh, with your words. Mm. As you say, for the, for the same reason that uh, a machine does shouldn't have any unnecessary parts, mm-hmm. to me the sentence shouldn't have any unnecessary words. So it's mm. straight to the point. And I think that is the most important part. Yeah, wow. Incredibly fascinating. And, and now, as a coach, John, you, you mentioned that's what you're busy currently doing right now. It's, yeah. you're not, it's not just Mark and, and Sinead, but 
so many others too that you've worked with and helped them, whether it's to become an elite athlete or just to get off the couch and do a five kilometer. What are some of the tips and advice you give to those people in particular, the first timers to kickstart their journey towards becoming a runner? Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, you have to be patient. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's it, it's a long process, but but the end result can be very rewarding. Mm-hmm. And for me, I I take you know great pleasure in actually seeing athletes succeed. You know whether it's from somebody just realizing that they can run five k, or for mm-hmm. somebody running a really really fast time. Mm-hmm. And for me, I like to see athletes doing something that I couldn't do because for me, it's a further more a plan that I make out and I'm coaching them. Mm-hmm. I may suppose in some ways you kind of know that just because I can't do it doesn't mean I don't know how to do it. Sometimes I can kind of see something in somebody mm-hmm. and I know that I, I make a suggestion to them. Someone will take me up and some don't. Mm-hmm. And that's the only when I met Sinead, first of all, she, mm-hmm. she was finishing the double marathon with, with another guide. Mm-hmm. She had finished it in a little over four years, and I knew by looking at the way she was walking that mm-hmm. she still had more distance left in her legs, and that's where I suggested she she try something else. Mm. Wow, amazing! Yeah. Now, finally, yeah. John, how much longer do you think you can go with your ultra marathon running career, and mm-hmm. and what's the biggest goal or target you still hope to achieve for someone who has already run in so many countries and different races? The way I look at it now, everything everything now is a bonus. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go for as long as I can. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know where the finish line is. So I've, I've no intention of actually uh, stopping now. And one of the good things about coaching is you can be slowing down or easing back, but you're still involved. So you're still there. I would like to think that I've, that I've a few more competitive years left inside me. Well, John, you found running quite accidentally, and thank goodness you did. I mean, you're such an inspirational runner and a person to so many people. Thank you for sharing your stories with us on the Hardest Nails podcast and how your strong mindset has helped you and others transition from a recreational jogger to an elite athlete. We wish you many more years and kilometers ahead on all sorts of terrain and locations. Thank you so much, John. And thanks for having me.